Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you all for coming. Um, we're going to have a conversation about a, a, an 11th century Arabic text, which is a fictional text, which I like to call a novella. And that is something that in itself is worth arguing about because it's not a term, a generic term, a, a genre that, it's oft, that is often or at all applied to any work of pre-modern Arabic literature. So, and so we're going to try and make a case for it at the end of um, 40 minutes or so, during which we hope to give you enough idea about the text to perhaps make up your own mind about whether it's a novella or something else. And the question about what exactly it is is very much going to be the, the fibre of our conversation, as it were. Um, so let me just start, well, by introducing... There's always an introducer. No, I normally introduce these events at the Institute, but I, I have to introduce myself. I'm Philip Kennedy. I direct the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute's public program. Um, I didn't invite myself. I was sort of press-ganged into this and <laughs> accepted to be here tonight. But um, it was made easy for me to accept this when Mo Morris Pomerantz, who teaches literature, Arabic literature, uh, Islamic studies, Arabic history. Um, we have very similar interests. Um, so when he accepted to be my interlocutor for this, because I know that he has interests very similar to mine in these kinds of texts, uh, I was happy to to heed the press gang or to follow, the, to be press ganged into this. <clears throat> of course, I'm joking. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. So let me just start with um, a brief passage that I read out that comes right from the heart of this text. Uh, in, in the physical sense, right from the middle of the book. And it's the, the context that you need to know for me to read this is that a young man has been invited to a dinner party and he <clears throat> expects once one dish has been taken away that another dish is going to show up. I mean, the nature of this dinner party is quite peculiar and we'll get to that. So I didn't doubt, he says, because it's all actually written in the the first person, this narrative, was told in the th first person. I didn't doubt this, that this would be another silver cup or some dish for the end of the meal. But lo, instead, there I saw on the table a tray with an array of instruments, iron hooks for extracting molars, hot irons for the spleen and head, forceps for extracting leeches, sharp instruments like arrowheads, needles for performing surgery on the white of the eye, and others for extracting finger and toenails, long blades for treating colic, and others for performing circumcisions, urinary catheters, hemorrhoid hooks, cone-shaped instruments for clearing the nostrils, amputating sores, instruments, instruments for couching cataracts, scoops for cleansing the ears, cleaving irons, etc., etc. So that seems like a very uh, daunting passage of horrifying-looking instruments, um, from which I, I expect you can get no sense of, of the mood. But once you've read this text uh, in, in its entirety, then, then you detect the very rife humour that actually is, is conveyed in that list of 
horrifying instruments because it's about someone who's trying to convince mm. someone not to eat. And these instruments, the, which actually existed <clears throat> in the surgery of the medieval Islamic world, are supposed to be a threat, um, a, a, a sort of performed, displayed threat for the young man by an old doctor who's an old miser. Um, warning the young man of the dangers of eating too much. If you eat too much, these are all the instruments that you will need to be treated with, horrifying as they are, for um, your foolish diet. Um, so we'll get, to, I want to present enough of this text in the course of half an hour or so, 40 minutes. Um, read samples of translations to give you a, a, a feel of the text, uh, as I have it, as I feel it. I mean, because I, I feel this is a very good text for the Library of Arabic Literature, about which we can say a bit, to translate into English. It's never been translated into English. Um, and it seems to me uh, that this 11th century Arabic belletristic work can be made to feel accessible, <laughs> enlightening, entertaining, um, for all sorts of reasons, if rendered into good English, into good modern contemporary English, um, in a way that, that translates and conveys the spirit of the original. It's a, it's a text uh, of, of great humor, and yet it's a, very, um, it's a very specialized text because it's about medicine, doctors and, and their practice. It's also about charlatans. So I, want, I feel that the un that the unrelenting humor uh, can come across to a contemporary audience. And the only way of proving that is to read out some translations. Um, but we also need to, what we also need to do, two of us, mm -hmm. is to provide the background of this text. Um, <clears throat> it's called very mm -hmm. bluntly, tersely, um, just straightforwardly by, by medieval authors that refer to this text and also modern literary historians, a maqama. In the Arabic, it's entitled the Dawat al which can be translated as, as the physician's or the doctor's mm -hmm. dinner party. Um, so it's a, it's a text, a fiction about um, doctors and charlatans. So, but it's also a text about a lot of other things. Now, the fact is, it's called a maqama because it it has an affinity with a genre called the maqam, although whether or not it is a maqam is something that's very <laughs> debatable. <clears throat> right. But in fact, the end, of the, the, sort of end point of my argument is that we, could, we can ditch the term maqam <clears throat> and use the word novella. But we can, do you want to say something now? Yeah, uh, well, um, I think you've all hooked us um, already with this, uh, you know, this, this intriguing uh, discussion um, and also uh, these marvelous instruments. Um, we see an author at work uh, and an author who is very knowledgeable and is up to many different things. So tell us, uh, if you will, before we, you know, uh, for those of us who don't know anything about this text, in fact, even experts in the field, uh, very few know the text of Ibn Bablan. I myself have just um, read it. Um, it's kind of thought about as being the, on the margins of um, the Bakama genre, as one person described it, being sort of medico-philosophical adept. Um, and 
who's, who's an author? I mean, what kind of authors produce this kind of literature? Tell us a little bit about Ibn Butlan, how unusual he is, what his life was like, mm -hmm. uh, um, how did he end up writing a text like this? Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure that's probably on many of your minds. Say, who is Ibn Butlan, yes. Say, he's not up there. His name is Ibn Butlan, but that, of course, was in the title of the lecture. His full name was Mukhtar ibn Sa'dun ibn Butlan, which sounds like an inauspicious name if you know the Arabic <laughs> roots. Batala means to be uh, worthless. Right. Although it has an opposite yes. connotation yes. if you take Batal to mean a hero. Yes. But then, and we've got some Sa'd in there also. Sa'd. And we've got some Sa'dun, yes, yes, so yes. that's auspicious. So he, yes. he was a Nestorian Christian um, and was one of the most in, once you know something about him, most fascinating polymaths. Can you actually hear me at the back? I feel this doesn't work. Uh, and authors of the 11th century, um, of 11th century Arabic letters. He was a doctor. You mentioned philosophy, a philosopher. Fact is, if you were a doctor, Tabib, if you were a true doctor, you were also a philosopher in medieval Islamic times. Um, so you were imbued with the tradition of medicine that came from Galen and Hippocrates, actually, essentially. Um, <clears throat> but also imbued with the philosophy that went with that Greek medicine, but also the philosophy of the, of the great philosophers. I mean, a doctor was a philosopher. Uh, Ibn Butlan was more than just a doctor and a philosopher, a doctor philosopher, let's say. He was a biblical exegete and a man of letters richly versed in the tradition of Arabic poetry and belles lettres. And belles lettres is the English term we use for the Arabic term edeb. Edeb when it is used in medieval Arabic literature. <clears throat> uh, of course, edeb is the word used in modern contemporary Arabic for literature, simply put. Um, mm. But edeb, when it's used in the medieval uh, sphere, cultural sphere, means something different. <clears throat> it is literature, but it's, it's um, writings about <clears throat> real people on the whole, historical people, personages, whether they be important, mm -hmm. upper middle class, middle class, um, or, or even the, popular, the, pop, you know, the general population. But they are about real people, and they purport to be about real events. Mm -hmm. And it is said that the goal of Edep is, is that it be edifying, um, that it teach. That it, that it convey moral values. <clears throat> it can also be humorous, of course. And it instructs, either by being specialized in one theme or another, it can be, you can say more about this, actually, Morris. You know. Yeah, we, well, we were talking um, uh, earlier, of course, about how we would even place a work, this work, uh, um, whatever we want to call it, Dawit al-Atiba, the Physician's Dinner Banquet. We can, we can think about the title, of course. But how it fits within this broader world of adab writing of this time, the 10th and 11th centuries, when, when uh, people were writing works of this kind, was a flowering period of, uh, and are very experimental and are very, uh, very much uh, things that we perhaps might call genres today. Were very, it was very open. And in fact, we're at a loss often to, to um, not, it's not so much that we don't um, know these works. They're just very hard to classify some Authors, uh, I can think of uh, a number in particular, the great Abu Hayyan al-Tawhidi, every single work he wrote seemed to be in a new genre or a different genre or something experimental. And I think Ibn Butlan kind of fits within that milieu. Um, 
And that's an interesting thing. And, 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 and what scholars have done um, somewhat artificially, I think, and that's going to be something what we're going to talk about, is that they've kind of, they've attempted to try, try to use words like makama, for example, this genre of form, um, in order to sort of pave a way through this great uh, plethora of different kinds of forms. And we're going to give you a sense now before I think we uh, get to Dawat uh, al-Atiba um, to talk a little bit about the makama as a 10th century and uh, a phenomenon. It's, um, we're not sure how important it was in the 10th century. But for us today, it's a very, the maqamat al-Hamadani, um, an author who lives at the end of the 10th century and is writing uh, roughly, we think, around 384, 385 of the Hijra, so thinking end of, end of the 10th century. Um, uh, to give you a sense of his work, he, the maqama involves two characters. One is a, a narrator character who kind of sets the scene. And he goes to a new location, and he encounters um, let's say in a, in a city square or in another place like a hospital or um, a scene. And in that scene, he sees someone, be it a blind man, a doctor, perhaps a fraudulent doctor, doing something. And that something that that person is doing is both verbal but also involves a kind of what we call uh, in the business a picaresque kind of trick. He's getting money in the end for this. And it's sort of the exchange of, of words and coins is very central to all of this. So that's, that's kind of the classic form of the maqama. I mean, scholars have sort of tried to narrow it down and put what is, again, a work of Hamadani, which has lots, a plethora, I think, a richness, a fullness of adab. Because I think adab is like that. It's got a fullness to it. Um, likes to break boundaries, actually. Scholars like uh, boundaries, but adibs like to break them. Uh, and it, there's a richness uh, to them. And I don't know, should I give us? So one thing, yeah, uh, go ahead. One thing to say is that I <clears throat> just defined Adeb, and people might balk at this as being about, on the whole, about people that can be identified as Adeb, <laughs> and about events that the anecdotes, because Adeb is made up of anecdotes, Akbar. I think your microphone dropped. Oh, did it? <laughs> <laughs> How far back do I have to go? What I should. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, so, Edeb purports to be about people, real events, on the whole, and that's how it's instructive because it's it's exemplary. It's right. exemplar. The lives of people teach one about how to lead one's own life, own life, or have a vision of one's own life. Um, but the thing. So then the question is: Well, where does fiction come into right. Arabic literature? Um, from, its, from the beginnings with pre-Islamic poetry and through the Quran, Hadith, etc., into, into the 11th century. Where does fiction come in? Well, the fact about the maqama is that it's supposed to be, and maybe we exaggerate this by being too categorical, it's supposed to be the first fictional genre mm -hmm. of Arabic literature. Now, the fact is, if... Uh, Makama is something that's fictional but still belongs to Edeb because it's of its high-flown mm -hmm. register of Arabic. Um, then this is certainly akin to a Makama. But what's interesting about the way this text begins is that Ibn Butlan says that he wrote this. Sanafaha al-Mukhtar bin Hassan ala madhab 
Khalil wa Dimna. So he says, rather than it being a maqama, he doesn't say it's a maqama. He says, it's, I've written this in the manner of Khalil wa Dimna, which of course you probably all know is um, a collection of, that ultimately comes from India, the so-called Bidpai fables, about animals. About, but there's stories about animals, sort of humanized animals, anthropomorphized, uh, anthropomorphized animals, that teach one um, moral, morality and ethics and etc. But the p- fact that they're about animals who are given words and act like humans mm. makes it makes these texts obviously fictional. So, so what Ibn Butlan is saying at the beginning of this text even though it's quite different to Khalil Adin, is that it is a fictional text. And in that sense, it's like a maqama. Yes. I suppose. Yeah. It's funny. I, I think as scholars, we've, we've paid a lot of attention to this, this topic of fiction. And, and one of the things I know uh, Philip uh, has done in his uh, career prior to coming to NYU Abu Dhabi was to rethink that, that question of fiction and, and nonfiction uh, but adab is, you know, again, always a slippery con, uh, concept. Uh, we're going to talk, uh, I guess, uh, should we do a little bit more about the literary yeah, context? Sure. Uh, well, medical, uh, I guess, texts are one area where I said a fraudulent doctor. Um, uh, in the maqamat, we didn't know. We, we know of, for example, this text of al-Hamadani, this first kind of maqama collection. We know about it um, as being, um, we knew it as being a variety of different fields and things. Uh, one of the most famous uh, maqamas, and perhaps the one that will help you understand, Dawat al-Atibah is the maqama of the Madira, um, which is about someone who's a, a trickster getting tricked. Um, which is kind of an, uh, a kind of a one-upsmanship on the regular pattern of the makama, where um, normally it's the trickster doing the trick or tricking. In this case, it's the trickster being tricked. And how he's being tricked is he has been offered a meal. He's invited to someone's home, offered a meal, but he the meal is constantly known as the madira, this particular kind of stew. This meal is constantly delayed. Uh, through the narrative, through the very words, in fact, of his host. And that's one feature of this text that we're going to mm. talk about. It's called, I guess, a, a species of bukhul, uh, stinginess. Uh, and that's a big theme. Uh, you know, many of you might know the work of Ajahas, a uh, big theme for him, but also in the maqama of the Madira. Uh, so that's one area where I think the maqama sort of intersects in an interesting way with this work. Mm-hmm. Um, the, second, the second way is, um, uh, well, no one knew this until 2012, um, 2011, it's published in 2013. Um, myself and a colleague, we discovered uh, what we think, I mean, it may or may not be, um, one of the maqamat of al-Hamadhani, which actually was about medicine. And we didn't know that he knew anything about medicine, but he wrote one about uh, medicine. And again, it sort of lends um, interest then to think about this sort of medical uh, terminology, or at least, um, I would say pharmacological terminology uh, leading towards um, a text like the, the Physician's Dinner Banquet. Um, yeah, so what's interesting about that Maqama Tibia, as Morris and, and my his co-author have, have labeled it, I think quite rightly, is that it's, it 
Is that Hamadani, if he is the author, and I think he is, you make a good case mm. for it, um, knows a lot about pharmacopoeia. He knows a lot about medicines and powders and, and where they come from. So he can create this tableau, this vignette of, of pharmacological um, jargon that's very convincing. Because what the maqamat are all about, uh, what the maqamat do is, is try and convince an audience, dupe an audience, into believing something by the use of, of, of words, extremely eloquent words and high-flown words, words that are, uh, are um, you know, the summon of adab, if you like. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's a lot of knowledge that can go into text <clears throat> that is actually uh, tongue-in-cheek or is about charlatry or duping um, players within the text. Um, so in a way, what, what people have said about the Muhammad is that while Adab on the whole tries to teach through language and through uh, edifying language and good language, <coughs> high classical Arabic, the Muhammad presents you with high, eloquent, high flown sometimes classical Arabic, but warn you in the process of the narrative about the dangers of eloquence. You shouldn't yes. be deceived by eloquence because it doesn't necessarily convey or hold the truth, which is... Yes. So it seems to me that perhaps there was a time when people were duped by high-flown language more than they should have been. <laughs> um, so the Madiri is a, a, a wonderful text, actually. I'd like to perhaps read something about it. I mean, it, is, it has this, this plot whereby something is delayed through, work, through language. <coughs> Um, I, before reading this short passage, I just want to say a bit more about Imbutlan because yeah. she said, having said that he was a polymath, uh, richly versed in Arabic poetry, actually, he quotes much classical Arabic poetry, although he was principally a, a doctor, a philosopher. Um, so he studied in his home city of Baghdad, blending in his learning the Greek tradition of medicine with new empirical practices. Um, in the 1040s, he left Baghdad with the idea of advancing his career in Cairo. And there, he sought out a man called Ibn Ridwan, who actually, Ali Ibn Ridwan, who was an important doctor. He certainly held sway in Cairo. He's actually mentioned in the Canterbury Tales as mm. Ali. Mm. Uh, the H somehow representing mm -hmm. the Ayn of Ali. Mm -hmm. So he was an important doctor, who, cognizance of whom there existed in, in, in in uh, Chaucer's time. Um, now, he was the most influential doctor scholar of his day, but Ibn Ridwan received Ibn Mutlan very grudgingly and they debated fiercely. Ibn Ridwan, Ibn Ridwan hewed aggressively to traditional practice, whereas Ibn Mutlan, though versed in tradition, the Galenic tradition, the Hippocratic tradition, aver averred that medicine should develop through empirical observation also. But Ibn Ridwan held swears, I've said, in Cairo, and Ibn Mutlan was, in professional terms, hounded out of town. It seems he bore a deep grudge thereafter, and this can be sensed in the sardonic invective terms of the Dawah, um, which is something we need to talk about. Sure. For a while, after fleeing Cairo, he resided in Constantinople. Um, he knew Greek, and it is likely that he read the Dyknosophists uh, of Athenaeus. Uh, while he was ensconced there. Now, the Dyknosophist was a significant Greek word of the Hellenistic period, and one which the Dawah certainly bears 
of which the dollar certainly bears the hallmarks. Um, I, I think that's indisputable, actually, having read them both. Mm. Indeed, the dawah must be considered, therefore, a work of mixed origins and miscegenation, mm. uh, influenced, as it so clearly is, and in very different ways, by both Greek and Arabic science and letters. So both Greek science and letters and Arabic science and letters. Ibn Butlan composed the dawah towards the end of his life. Again, that's debatable. I'm, I'm sort of contradicting myself because I'm looking at dra earlier drafts of what I've written and thought about this subsequently. He seemed to be chafing in his later life, still at his rough treatment in Cairo and having left Constantinople uh, to see out his life in northern Syria. Um, no, let me backtrack. It seems that he was chafing for a long time at his rough treatment in Cairo. Um, so what I would say then, before we move to say something about the Madiriyah, is sure. the following. That the Dawah de la Tibba is a satirical gem of 11th century fictional Adam narrative set in a medical milieu. Its length and sustained scenario as an eloquent, erudite, and sophisticated fiction make it fairly unique for the literature of this period. One might label it a novella, therefore, as I've said, or a mini-drama, in fact. It could easily be transcribed as a play, um, which would last about an hour and a half, I suspect, <laughs> an hour, I don't know. It's, a, it's a, quite a long text. Its significance lies in a number of features, I would say, in addition to its delightful readability. And they are its affinities with the developing picaresque and fictional Macarmajan, we're trying to sort of recap what we said. It's affinity also with the Edeb subgenre narratives about misers, about which much has been written. And my, misers on the whole could be, as in most Edeb texts, real players or people. Um, it's also significant in the way it reflects a deep technical knowledge of medical practice and law while showing up the hypocrisy of quack doctors. That's the essential point. There were medical texts in this period on which it draws because Ibn Mutlar was a doctor. There were also texts that were written way back from, from the ninth century, in fact, and this is following the Galenic tradition, about quack doctors, about charlatanry. How do you tell a good doctor from a bad doctor? As I say, Galen wrote texts uh, in which he lists tests, tests that you can, by which you can <clears throat> find out the, the truth or not of a doctor for doctor's credentials. Hunayn ibn Ishaq, the most important figure really in the ninth, middle ninth century, uh, the vehicle really, who, who brought much of the, the Greek tradition of medicine and, and philosophy mm. into the Arabic tradition, mm. wrote a text called Mihnat al-Tabib, which doesn't survive, but which is in this Galenic tradition of, of testing quack doctors. Uh -huh. And this is a feature that plays a, 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 an important role in this text. Um, so what I would say is that this is both a literary parody, this text, of scientific debate and a social satire of charlatanry and miserliness. It is richly textured in its language and exquisitely, although simply structured. In addition to displaying the question and answer format of technical literature, <clears throat> it is re replete with appositely cited poetry and thematic narrative subtext hinting in, in subtle psychological gestures 
at the infatuation of a series of ed elderly medical practitioners with their young guest, who turns out to be a charlatan. So that's the, that's what I would say is the, the background of, of the text in terms of it, what I call its miscegenation. Yes, you've given us a really great um, way of thinking about um, this text and Adab in general as being sort of both, um, you know, what we might naively call the literary, but also very much deeply within the intellectual and social world. Um, well, uh, do you want to read this bit about Madeira or not? We've had enough of Madeira. I, I, uh, we could read some Madeira. Yeah, so the Madeira is a great text because, I mean, <clears throat> Morris said, what, what Morris said about the Madiria is, is absolutely true. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to read a passage out of uh, Professor Gertjan van Gelder's book called uh, God's Banquet, which is a book about food in, in the medieval Arab world. Um, and it's really, about, it's really about the literature of food. It's, it's, it's mostly about Edeb, actually. And he says about the Madiria the following, in what is perhaps Al-Hamadhani's, do you know Hamadhani's death date, by the way? Uh, 398, 1008, sorry. 1008. 1008. <laughs> right, whereas Ibn Butlan <laughs> died in 1066, which is a very significant date. Mm -hmm. um, so in what is perhaps Al-Hamadhani's best known and certainly most enjoyable maqama, food is in fact conspicuously absent. And Abu Fatah, who's the protagonist, the charlatan protagonist of these maqamat, rather than sinning, is sinned against. It is entitled Al-Madiriya, after a popular stew of cooked meat in sour milk called Madira. This dish is served at a banquet and is lovingly described, but, but is removed from the table at the instigation of the protagonist, uh, Abu Fatah, who refuses to eat it. This is the beginning uh, of the uh, episode. To explain his strange behavior, he tells his story. So once, he says, he was invited by a merchant to his house and promised a dish of Madeira. On the way to the house, and for a long time after their arrival, he has to endure the endless chatter of his host, who is immensely pleased with himself, Nouveau Riche, and all he possesses. At a certain point, Abu Fatah has had enough, and dreading the prospect of being told at great length and in great detail how the raw materials for the meal were produced, selected, and acquired, how the Madeira itself was prepared. He despairs and absconds on the pretext that he has no, he has to visit the laboratory. As Beaumont, another scholar, has observed, the dish will apparently never be attained after the endless blether, just as Zeno's paradoxical arrow will never reach its aim. When the host assures Abu Fat that the splendors of his lavatory would make it, make it a fitting dining room, the latter runs off while his host cries out, but Abu Fat, the Madeira, as he concludes, the main point of this maqama, as Van Gelder concludes, is the exposure of the Boris man manners of the parvenu. Its main technique is the, mo is the motif of empty words instead of nourishing food. And so, um, this idea of, of a text being a sort of feast of words, um, which narrates the fact that, that a, a, a meal that is promised is never actually given uh, or, or attained. Hmm. Is that a motif that we find uh, in, in many texts 
of this period, and certainly that is one of the main um, devices, if you like, narrative devices of, of this text, right. in which there is a feast of words. But the words, in the case of, of, the, of the physician's dinner parties, are medical words. Every time uh, an old doctor who's invited this young man home presents a dish, he tells the young man all the reasons, all the medical reasons, why he shouldn't eat any of the dish. And this goes on through the whole meal. Um, so it's a feast of words, with medical words in this case. Yes. Um, and this is uh, something you, one can trace to, or one can see uh, existing also in, um, in the Western tradition. I mean, in the Dipnus Sophists of Athenaeus, the same thing is going on, it's a feast of words. In the first volume, instead of eating food, as these um, philosophers are seated around the table, they just talk about the ethics of eating and other things. It's mostly about Homer, actually, and the qualities of Homeric figures. Um, and Trimalchio's Dinner Party by Petronius, actually, is similar, yeah. uh, and other texts. So, It's fascinating because, of course, it, it gets, um, you know, uh, for, for uh, Arabic speakers, of course, adab as etiquette here, and the, the way the dinner party is supposed to unfold, and adab in that other sense, perhaps related sense of uh, polite conversation, are being totally undermined, or at least played with, and what's also being played with is readerly expectations. Um, and of course, we have your expectations um, here too uh, on the line. And I think we ought um, to get to the beautiful verbiage of, uh, of Ibn Butlan and, sure. the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and the translations yeah. of, of uh, okay, my let's do that. dear colleague. So I've read one. Uh, what we've talked about, the, all these books I've brought here, that are, for me, these are all the background. Yeah. These, what I call the, the sort of generic miscegenation of this text. So there's one book that's <laughs> the art of party crashing in medieval. What is that? In medi medieval Iraq. Iraq, yeah. Sorry, it was. Uh -huh. Which was by uh, Al Khattib al Baghdadi, yes. an important writer of the late 11th century, yeah. 11th century. There's another book here, it's totally different. This is a very funny text, actually, and it even has some hadith, actually, going yes, to tell of the Prophet Muhammad. Let me give you one example. So I know I keep putting now. off. I'm doing exactly what <laughs> this technique of this is, promising, uh, promising are, something and not giving it. These are appetizers. These are nukul. Okay. <laughs> See, there is an interesting <laughs> one. Because this text does what a lot of texts do in Adab literature. It begins with the more ostensibly religious materials. There are uh, anecdotes, the hadith indeed, uh, about the Prophet. And it's, they're not saying that the Prophet was a party crasher, but there was sort of activity that was akin to party crashing in some of the hadith. And this example, is khabar, this hadith actually, is related on good authority. On The source was Anas, Anas ibn Malik. Yeah. One of the Prophet's neighbors was a Persian, and he made stew that was the most wonderful smelling thing. One day he was making some food and went over to the prophet who had, who had Aisha by his side and beckoned for him to come eat. 
Can she come with me? Asked the prophet, pointing to Aisha. No, said the man. He pointed at Aisha again and said, can she come with me? No, said the man. He pointed at her a third time and said, can she come with me? The man said, yes. And so Aisha went with him. So, so that's sort of leading one into the, the stories of real party crashes. Yes. Um, which, of course, is a form of miserliness. Um, this other book I brought is called Questions and Answers for Physicians, which is written by a, a man called Abdul Aziz Sulami. He's not the great mystical commentator, the man who died in, in 1208. He, was, he worked for the Ayyubis in Cairo and produced this text on questions and answers for medical, for men of the medical profession. And these are, categor uh, these are broken up into different chapters. Like there's one, chapter five, on simple drugs. There is a chapter actually in the Makama, in this physician's dinner party on, mm -hmm. on uh, drugs. They're interesting texts. They're obviously supposed, supposed to be scientific, but well, sometimes one can detect that what's being conveyed <laughs> is not true at all, or at least can't be true. So question four, into how many classific classifications are a falling manna, that is M-A-N-N-A, -N -N from heaven, divided? How many are there? And from where is each obtained? This is a question one is supposed to pose to someone who claims to be an expert, a, a, pharma, a pharmacologist, yes. a chemist, whatever. The answer is, there is this is recorded in the 11th treatise of Tamimi's Al-Murshid. You know, one Arabic text always leads you to another. Where he says, as for their classifications, there are two. One is a kind that drops from the air on trees. Some have a caustic taste, like dodder. Some are sharp like dodder. Some are slightly bitter and, frag and fragrant like Indian, Ethiopian, and Yemeni turmeric, Kamala, laudanum, and ak. These are the kinds of aerial medications that fall on trees. As for the second classification of manna, <laughs> it is sweet essences that dissolve in water and fire and freeze in cold weather like manna and honey. As for their number, there are 15. Honey, sugar of Asclepias gigantea, manna, again, honey, Syracost manna, again, wax, laudanum, lac, turmeric, kamala, dodder, dodder, again, and sugar. Honey, said a tamimi in his al-murshid, falls from the sky in every country and every region, inhabited and uninhabited. And it goes on and on. <laughs> a strange list, but so there's something wrong in that. But it's a secret, serious text. So, <clears throat> so, so I think we've talked enough about, as you've said, yes. uh, the sort of background context into which one, um, within which one must understand this unique text. Um, before reading from my translation then, we want to do the middle, the beginning, and the end, right? Yes. And we have a bit of time. We have some time. Um, I thought I would read something from, that talks about Hunayn ibn Ishaq again, this, this uh, Syriac. Is that right? Can I, can I call someone a Syriac? Mm. <laughs> Wrong. Syriac speaker. Syriac speaker, <laughs> yeah. He was a Syriac speaker, based in Baghdad, wrote for the great caliphs. Which ones? It's a question and answer. <laughs> Al Ma'mu? Later? Mu'tasim? Mutawakkal? Anyway, mid, mid 9th century, very important. 
figure in the translation movement. Uh, so he had a theory of translation, and this is described in a Safadi, uh, in, in a Safadi's prosopographical work. Can we call it prosopographical? About people. He, Safadi died in 1363. As I said, one Arabic text leads you to another Arabic mm -hmm. text. This is why when you do Arabic, medieval Arabic studies, you're always reading texts. And they just, one leads you to another, one explains another, one is the background of another or whatever. Um, he had an appreciation of Hunayn's translation technique, and it goes thus. The, translation, the translators use two methods of translation, says Safadi of Hunayn's technique. One of them is that of Yuhanna ibn al-Butriq, Ibn Naim al-Himsi and others. According to this method, the translator studies each individual Greek word and its meaning, chooses an Arabic word of corresponding meaning and uses it. Then he turns to the next word and proceeds in the same manner until the end, until in the end he has rendered into Arabic the text he wishes to translate. This method is bad. <laughs> <clears throat> the second method is that of Hunayn ibn Ishaq. Uh, and al-Jawhri and others. Here the translator considers a whole sentence, ascertains its full meaning, and then expresses it in Arabic with a sentence identical in meaning, without concern for the correspondence of individual words. This method is superior, and hence there is no need to improve the works of Hunayn ibn Ishaq, if they survive. Many of them don't. So these two methods are sometimes also called verbum de verbo, word for word, and sensum de senso, meaning for meaning, after a well-known expression by Cicero, the famous Roman statesman, orator, etc. Et mm -hmm. so, it's interesting. I read that because it corresponds very much, I think, with the philosophy of the Library of Arabic Literature um, for which this text is being translated. We want to convey the sense, the overall sense, of what the Arabic is saying, not providing cribs, word-for-word word cribs, <coughs> for what the individual Arabic words are saying, and, pr and producing, therefore, unreadable English, which we feel that has existed too long in our field from the 19th right. century. Well, it's the beginnings of science in the end, you know. That's what he's discussing, mm. the sort of the early period, I think. Um, we struggle with uh, the philological and very word-by-word -word, uh, translations, and then I think, uh, I don't know, if I feel we're yet in a middle period in our own field, but certainly for many of us, we felt that we've, we've we, I think our field has suffered actually for not, and has not gained the attention um, that it rich, these texts richly deserve. Were they translated, if they were only translated according to sense, they would, they would live a life, uh, uh, um, a much happier life, uh, and a much longer life, and a much uh, richer life yeah. for others. So, um, well. So so should we have our first main course? Uh, sure, yeah. Well, that would be an appetizer, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, or an entree. Uh, well, entree in America means the main course. I never understood that. <laughs> um, just so I'm going to read some of my translation, beginning, middle, end, to give you a, a sense of the work that I've been, we've been talking about. I suppose we yes. must have utterly mystified you by talking about this word in such an unstructured way. So we're going <laughs> to now produce a structure by telling you the story through some samples or excerpts. 
just to tell you that the Lao, the Library of Arabic Literature, doesn't, doesn't only translate, but it, it edits, we produce editions of the Arabic original, which lies side by side on, on facing pages. Arabic on the left and the English on the right. And these editions of the Arabic are not critical in the sense that we examine every manuscript and annotate every single divergence from the base text that we're, that we're producing. But we uh, know what we're doing without showing the work, <laughs> as it were. So that we're producing a fiable text. I think that word fiable, mm. it's the one I like. It means a trust, a, a work, a, an edition that one can trust. Um, and if someone desires or is attached to the critical apparatus of the Arabic text, of the, then that can go online. So that the book can remain free and uncluttered and, and not put off um, abroad, uh, the audience that we want to, to reach. Um, so what, I, what, what we have here is just the, uh, the opening page from the oldest manuscript of this, the Dawat al-Atibba, which is the one I've decided to base the edition on reasons that I can explain in Q&A, if you like, because I'm sure there are some raised eyebrows at the back over there. There's a group of, of <laughs> philologists sitting over there. <laughs> um, I like this. It's actually, the, the, it's, a, it's a manuscript that belongs to the Ambrosiana Library in, in Italy, in Milan. Very hard to get it from the Italians even though they're very polite on the phone, but they send you around in circles. I got it from uh, Notre Dame University, which has digitalized copies of every single thing in the Ambrosiana, and they produced it for my... Well, they produced it within 24 hours, I think, through the um, intermediary... <clears throat> Where's Sean Anthony? Yeah. <laughs> A friend of mine over there, yes. Um, there are, I know of five manuscripts of this work. Um, there's a fragment of this work, which is very interesting, <clears throat> that was found in the Geniza collections of Cairo. <clears throat> two, two, folio, two folios. Um, what's interesting about this fact is that it indicates, because the manuscript is written not in Judeo-Arabic, that is to say it's not Arabic in Hebrew letters, which is what the majority of texts in the Geniza are, but in Arabic. So it must have belonged, the text in Mutlan's novella, as I like to call it, must have belonged to an erudite, <clears throat> a well-educated Jewish man of Cairo um, before, sometime before the 13th century. So that indicates to me that it was a popular text, that, that in, the, in a certain period after its composition, it was certainly better known than it has been amongst modern scholars who write the typical literary history of Arabic literature, where it tends to be overlooked, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Marginal to, you know, it's often just claimed <coughs> marginal and had effect only within medical uh, circles, and yet perhaps that... And yet it's can, the first Arabic novella, I mean, so... <laughs> this is how I'm trying to pitch this whole thing. So how does it start? So it starts, I mean, there's a source, Anonymous, who relates of the, f the following uh, in the words of the first person narrator or protagonist, who is this young man, 
who says, uh, upon arriving, this is, the, this is the beginning of this text, upon arriving at Maya Fodakin, and you should, is my mic still working? Yeah. Upon arriving at Maya Fodakin, which is in northern Syria, more or less north of Aleppo, I inquired about the doctors who resided there and was directed to a bench at the perfume market on which an old man in his 70s was seated. This old man had fine, sharp features and was of a pleasant humor. He was a courteous antagonist in any argument or dispute that I witnessed and stood out among his peers by clinging to the coattails of good breeding. Some of my colleagues might say, well, that's overblown. You should just say, he stood out among his peers by his good breeding. I don't know what you think. See, there I've used the Arabic metaphor. Mm -hmm. So we're always faced with the dilemma of, do we translate the metaphor literally or do we leave it out? If we feel it can convey the meaning transparently, pleasantly, uh, then we can translate the metaphor into English. I, I quite like clinging to the coattails of good breeding. Yeah, me too. I don't know what you feel. <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to invite you to respond to my translation to judge whether it works or not. So this old man was also skilled in the practice of medicine. I therefore approached and greeted him. He returned my greeting, made a space for me to sit, and received me with cordiality and respect. Who are you? He asked. Uh, who are you? He asked. I replied, I am a stranger whom fate has tossed upon this canton. <coughs> and what's your profession? He continued. A doctor, I said. To which he interjected, ah, the most worthwhile and profitable profession. Uh, it is tantamount to having goods for sale. And where have you come from? He said. Uh, from Baghdad, I replied. Ah, Baghdad is the navel of the world, he averred, and the earth's very apex. All who seek refinement aspire to that place, to its metal of a good character. It is the home of peace and the crowning canopy of Islam, blessed by the presence of the Imam. He then recited some verses, uh, which I will leave out, and said, I visited the city to study in its halcyon days. This is the old man speaking. Every one of which, every one of which day was like a feast day or a Friday, day of congregation. Its dust in those days was like antimony for the eyes, its pebbles like pearls fit to adorn necks. Learned men sold their wares in the marketplaces according to the season, like all other goods. There I met the likes of Ibn Khamar and Ibn Abdan, as well as Nadif Ibn Yumn al Qas, Ibn Baks, and Abu Wafa, the mathematician. These are all famous. Uh, figures who lived in the early 11th century. Therefore, this text is set about 30 years before Ibn Plan's Floroid, I would say. He sets it earlier than his own life, which is interesting. Perhaps that's just so that he can mention these figures. Um, so I asked him, says the young man, why he left Baghdad and whether he had simply grown bored of the place. And in, uh, he answered in verse, Ah, I knew both banks of that city. It was not rancor that pressed me to leave. How, I asked then, could you bear to leave those great men when they were your ultimate goal? He replied, um, well, I swear, when I came up to this region, none of those men were left alive. That's why I came. Mm. Is that it, I asked. 
Ah, well, the years themselves, he replied, and all their folk have dissipated away into nothing. It is as if they be all have become nothing but dreams. So there's this slightly elegiac yes. uh, tone that runs through um, the work, especially in the poetry. The poetry that is quoted is of two types. It's sort of mourning of past time and the criticism of the contemporary world. And there's a lot of lyric poetry, mm. wine poetry, love poetry, which doesn't correspond with the narrative in Toto. In fact, there's an erotic sub-theme that runs through the text, which is interesting. If we yes. have time, we can explain what I mean. So what the man, the old man now says is that knowledge and science themselves were lost with the demise of these people, these doctors that he has named that have now died. But even if they lived until today, they would soon die before their time. For good students willing to commit to their studies are rare now, and our books are sold off at perfume markets or shelters to buy necessities and provisions. This is a profession erased, the medical profession. Gone to the dogs, its fire has dimmed and gone out. Those who try their luck with it seek to gain, not to cure, to gain money, lucre. They say that sick bodies are healed by wise medicine or wise doctors, but that money sickens the doctor. And when the physician brings sickness upon himself, as you see all over, how then can he cure others? And this goes on and on, actually, this diatribe about the current state of affairs. Yes. Um, um, there's an interesting part that this, this diatribe leads into, which I think is significant, because this text, it's on this page, was, was I mean, it's part of the literature of, of panegyric, in a sense, or the tradition of panegyric, which is very important Arabic literature, because it was, it was um, dedicated to the Marwanid ruler, uh, whose name I mentioned actually before. Uh, Kirvash. So good, isn't uh, it? Nasr Dawla. Yeah, Nasr Nasir Dawla. Nasr Dawla Ibn Marwan, so the Marwanid ruler. So the text, if the text dedicated to the Marwanid ruler, effectively must be a text that that praises him. Right. Or certainly wouldn't do the opposite and satirize him uh, as a dedication. But what, what happens is that, in fact, um, there's this sort of antithesis of praise that, that emerges, which is that the doctor despairs of the fact that there are no ill people anymore, no sick. Everyone's <laughs> cured, everyone's well. And this is all down to the, the emir. Yes. And somehow, but, but he complains about this. It's, it's rather double-edged. Uh, it's a beautiful figure, isn't it? The sort of inversion of... Um, we've done our job so well that, that now, you know, um, and beautiful imagery too of of uh, yeah. uh, bur burial sh burial. It used to yeah, be right. It used to be there was all of this illness and times were great, <laughs> which is very funny. And then uh, you know the burial shrouds were like were like flowers. So he says, yeah. Since Nasr ibn Marwan has been in power, our profession has no purchase and our goods go to waste. In these parts, bodies are now healthy, plague is on the retreat, and drops is all but gone, though before it was only rarely that throat ailments left us totally. Autum autumnal ailments have ceased their affliction, though it used to be a reassuring known quantity for us. Now we see a sick man only once in a while. Funeral processions are few and far between, and lengthy stretches separate the times we hear wailing cries for the dead. 
<laughs> it's almost as if the accession of this ruler has rendered all bodies immune from disease <laughs> and put pay to all aching limbs. One could say, people have taken sanctuary against time among the Marwanis. So all people now sing, adapting the lines of Abu Nawas, I'm tied to Ahmad by the ropes of friendship. This is a line of praise. Um, so, and then it goes on in this manner, you know, this sort of uh, strange kind of madir. Um, very tongue-in-cheek, obviously. Yes. So one assumes that Nasr al-Dawla would have yeah. been amused by the text. If he wasn't, oh. he would have thought Ibn would have lost his head, but anyway. Yeah. Clever self-praise is, uh, is a talent. So, <laughs> so then um, the young man is invited by the uh, old man, the doctor, when the old doctor <laughs> learns that the young man has a slightly ailing stomach, feels unwell, has nausea, can't eat much. He says, oh, well, as soon as he hears that he can't eat much, he invites him home for a meal. And this is the first indication that there's something <laughs> wrong with this old man. That, uh, uh, this is the, you know, the first tinging of the text with um, So what happens in, when they arrive at the old man's house is that <coughs> The old man produces food and describes the disquisitions on food that have been written by Ibn Sina on chicory, etc., etc. He shows his erudition. All the time talking, delaying the eating of the food, and then warns against the food itself. Um, until eventually, um, a piece of um, a lamb yes. is brought before a roast lamb. This could be physical comedy when you. Uh, listen to it. Yes, so this is about the third course, I think. And every time the young man starts to eat, he's, t he's almost slapped. Uh, <laughs> he's almost slapped and told to stop eating and obey the old man's cautions about adhering to a diet. And so he kept going on and on about matters of digestion to distract me from eating. Since he wouldn't stop raving about this subject, I just ignored what he said and proceeded to eat. I set upon the vinegar and herbs. He ordered, he ordered no more food to be brought in until he thought I was satiated and was satisfied with the vinegar and herbs. He then told his servant boy, take this away and bring in the roast meat. The boy came back with a whole roasted lamb. So I reached for the shoulder of the <laughs> lamb and the old man butted in. Beware of this. It re its remains will sit heavily upon your heart. So I reached for the throat of the lamb. He said, do not expose yourself to this. It will slow your digestion. So I reached for the kidneys. He said, this is the organ where urine and blood sits. <laughs> so I gestured toward the thighs and he said, these lie near to the intestines and excrement. I asked permission to take the buttock. He said, by God, take care of yourself. It is unwholesome and will kill your appetite and cause summer <laughs> cholera. I asked, so what should I rely on? What should I do? He said, well, the extremities of the limbs, they are the most pleasant thing on a sheep, especially one newly weaned. So I made to, the, to take the extremi extremity closest to me, and he asked, do you take the hind parts when the forelimbs are more noble? And do you take the left side when the right is better, since it is closer to the heart? Take what I give you and avoid the rest, which will only harm you. He gave me a piece and then told his boy to take the rest away. Yeah. Um, wow. And that's when he brings in the surgical instrument. So then, you, so then you can see the context <laughs> yes. of the surgical instruments, which is supposed to shock the young man into 
believing that this, these will be used upon him if he actually um, caters to his own appetite. So this goes on and on. Um, there is actually a back and forth in part of the text. It, it sometimes seems that the, that, that the young man is totally put upon and mm -hmm. subjected passively to the tirades of the old man. But there's a point where actually he answers back, and they both seem to know Hippocratic sayings that that's um, sure of their arguments. But so the, the point is that the young man knows something about medicine. The problem is he doesn't know everything about medicine, and that transpires as the text goes on. Um, when all the food is taken away, uh, the the old man invites. Uh, four guests to come to partake of some wine, some post-prandial post, post wine. Yes. Um, and one of them is a, an oculist, a kahal. One of them is a surgeon, a shara'ihi. One of them is a, a kapa, a... I'm blanking on that. You have the facet, also the... A yeah, phlebotomist. Yeah, blood letter. Yes. And who's the, who's the fourth one? <laughs> Pharmacologist. Pharmacologist, yes. El Saidali. So they all come in, and one, actually one of them, the, the, the cupper is actually a young man who's a student of the old man who also plays the lute. Mm. Um, and of course, everyone is given a cup of wine to drink except the young man because he's suffering this delay, this, this, this bukhl, this miserliness on the part of his host. Um, now when his cup was filled, the old man, he said to his apprentice Abu Jabir, know that the ancients say that the lute has four qualities because Abu Jabir has brought in a lute. The lutist plectrum is like the cup of scalpel, the strings are like the veins, the face panels are, of the lute are like the nerves, so be careful not to pluck the strings and miss mm. and hit the board. So take heed of what I've said and sing us the verses of Abu Nuwas about our master, Jibreel ibn Bakhtishu, who was one of the great um, doctors of the, uh, of the Abbasid caliphs. So the boy began to sing. I asked my brother Jibreel, these are the words of Abu Nuwas, the great poet of the time of Harun al-Rashid who died in 813. I asked my brother Jibreel, the doctor, that man of great merit, the wine pleases me, so what to do? Too much of it kills, he said. So measure it out for me, said Abu Nuwaz. And he answered with grace, man has four humors. So measure out four for four, a measure for each humor. Mm. They were all in thrall at the singing and drank, all but me. And when I despaired of being given any drink, I began to eat the appetizers and asked, which is the most beneficial appetizer, sir? <laughs> At this point, he's sort of being sardonic with his host. You know. He answered, the caliph al-Mutawakil, uh, who's lived in the late 9th century, asked Jibreel the same question, and he replied, the appetizer of Abu Nuwas, o, o commander of the faith, faithful, at which al-Mutawakil asked, and what is that? He replied with a line of poetry, among the people there is nothing better than wine for water and kisses for appetizers. So this actually just starts to build on this uh, subtext, erotic subtext that runs through the text, mm -hmm. possibly a homoerotic subtext. Um, 
this point, the old man says, you're in the same position. The old man says to the young man. True, I replied, but Jibril said this to Al-Mutawakil when there were 12,000 servant girls in his palaces. <laughs> and am I supposed to be satisfied, satisfied with the likes of Abu, Abu, Abu Ayyub the oculist and Abu Salim the surgeon? <laughs> he grew angry at this and asked, did you not say you were a doctor? So he changes the subject. And at this point, you get, we go into that part of the text, which is the middle of the text, which is the question and answers, the tests <coughs> of the young doctor yeah. uh, for what he pretends to be or about what he pretends to be. The first test is, is by the old man himself, who is a tabai, which means a sort of generalist. And each, each one of these sections of these tests of the oculist, the pharmacologist, the surgeon, and the cupper are preceded with, question, with, with statements to the effect that, well, I'm not going to ask you about this, because that's really easy and everyone knows the answer, even though it's actually quite an interesting, intricate question. And, th and this is actually part of the delay tactics of the, of the work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have a, a series of lists. One is sort of unanswered questions, and then a series of actual questions which actually remain unanswered. Yeah. Because at the end of the actual questions, the bona fide questions that are asked, the young man says, well, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not actually a generalist <laughs> or I'm not actually an oculist yes. or I'm not actually a pharmacologist or I'm not actually a cupper. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, what are you? <laughs> and we'll tell you what, how this... A classic dialectical strategy for those who are um, ever in an intellectual debate. Well, should we just give Stop you one example? <laughs> yes. Well, do not think, said the old man, that I will ask you about why the Ethiopians and Slavs, while their countries and natures are so different and at opposites, both eat warm, dry foods, drink wine, and perfume themselves with musk and amber, whereas they should behave in opposite ways. I won't ask you this because it is well known that the answer lies in the fact that the Ethiopians use it, use them rather, as medicine, whereas the Slavs as nourishment. Everyone knows that. I will ask you about this. A man might sleep who is continent, yet, yet in his sleep see that he is urinating. Yet he is not in fact urinating. He then awakes. The, re the urine has forced him to waken and micturate. Or I answered, yes. That same man may see in his dream that he is making love and ejaculate. He then wakes up and finds that he has sperm on his clothing. I said, yes. He asks, so why, why is it that the urine is not excreted despite its quantity and can wait till he wakens, whereas the sperm is secre secreted despite its small quantity? They are both excretions. I said, I do not know. He then reposts uh, by, uh, in a sarcastic way full of innuendo suggesting that the young man has spent his life reading books about love theory and reading love lyric poetry. It's then the oculist turn to question him. Um, we don't have time. Right. We should perhaps stop, actually. Yes, we should. should okay. How does all of this So end? how does this end? <laughs> well, actually, there's a very interesting part, because at the end of all the, all, all the tests, which the young man has... Was, has um, failed miserably. Um, they all, the, the older men say to each other, well, he's, this guy's just like that other fellow that we knew, the, old, the, other, the other charlatan that we knew. So they start then talking about another young man <coughs> who had apparently 
exhibited the, the traits of a charlatan, but in, but in a much more graphic way, in a very different way. He was a man who dressed like a vizier, which a doctor should never do, because a doctor must dress humbly in order not to put the patient off uh, showing his body parts or showing his samples of urine and excrement, etc. Um, he behaved like an arriviste, didn't know anything about medicine, was in cahoots with a druggist, took 50% of the profits of a druggist, and actually corrupted women's morals. But he was accepted as a doctor in the area, in the vicinity, and this horrified, appalled the old doctor. So then he launches into this long diatribe about <clears throat> the um, parlous state of medicine in current times, and the parlous state of doctors, actually, parlous practice of doctors in contemporary times. And eventually falls asleep because he's drunk too much. <clears throat> Actually, it's interesting because just before falling asleep, the young man who's despaired of ever being given a cup of wine says, can I just have one cup of wine? Uh, uh, well, he says, well, the, uh, <laughs> the old man answers to this, this question. He says, if you deserve it, well, how can I be deserving, I asked. He said, by answering me this, after which of the two parts of our respiration do we drink? After breathing in or breathing out? And when you drink, how does your heart beat? In sync with your drinking or not? So I held my breath to find out the answer and he exclaimed, this is just what Ibn Qutayba wrote about in his about those people who were once asked how many teeth they had and all responded by putting their hands into their mouths to count. <laughs> I asked you this easy question, not whether or not the fetus's heart is in sync with its pregnant mother. Eventually he said, drink one cup. I do this out of pity for you. So I filled the cup to the brim. He said, how well you did this. You've created bubbles that look like the handwriting of learned men. So I said jokingly, this is the straight path. Sirat al-Mustaqim at which he got angry. A circle has no straight lines, but arches and curves. He took the cup from my hand and drank it all and said to his company sitting, he said to his company, sitting with an ignoramus is like fever to the soul. And then he falls asleep. <clears throat> what happens next? The old man falls asleep. The other doctors leave. The young man is about to leave when, Abu Jal, uh, when, when the young servant boy, who's been serving all the dishes, says, hey, hey, stay behind. We've got food to eat. He says, well, I can't take that. He's refused it all to me. He said, well, we, why don't you eat it, he says to them. He said, well, we can't eat it because when, when the old man wakes up, we can blame us. But if you stay, you'll be our cover. So they all stay and eat all the food. Then the old man wakes up. <coughs> the old man wakes up in a fury and... Uh, and accuses the young man of being a tufayi, and so he leaves the house. But what's interesting about this text, <clears throat> amongst all the other things we've talked about, is that there's this epilogue where the young boy comes back to the house three days later and, and sees the old man at an upper story window looking out. So he looks up at the old man and, and waves to him and says, Assalamu alaikum, he greets him. But the old man doesn't, refuses to answer. Shuts the, shuts the windows in a peak, and it's the end of the story. So there's sort of closure in a real physical sense. And we could sort of riff on that sort of pun, actually. Yes. It's an interesting 
ending because the return of the young man seems is, is very surprising to me. Yes, absolutely. And it's part of. There's so much detail in this text that sort of cumulatively or collectively it's led me to call it a novella. <laughs> because I feel that a novel, when we talk about a novel, one of the most important things about a novel is that um, the plot, you don't read for the plot, you read for the character, right? The actions of people show their character. And it's the psychology of character that you learn about most, most essentially when you read a novel. And it seems to me that in this text, there's enough action in the words and speech and actions to some extent of the, of the players that one learns their character. And one's, one learns something essentially sort of humanistic about, about um, what, has, uh, sort of, what has happened before our eyes, our reading eyes. I'll stop there. Right, well. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.